But this season, there's a, a little written piece that maybe you've seen, uh, I don't know, on a poster or a Hallmark card or something like that. You, you might have heard of it. It's called One Solitary Life. I know you can't read that, so I'll read it to you, but you might be familiar with it. It goes like this. It says, uh, he was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. Until he was 30, he worked in a carpenter shop, and then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He wrote no books. He held no office. He never owned a home. He was never in a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did any of the things that usually accompany greatness. The authorities condemned his teachings. His friends deserted him. One betrayed him to his enemies for a paltry sum. One denied him. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed on a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he owned on earth, his coat. And when he was dead, he was taken down, placed in a borrowed grave. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, yet today he is the crowning glory of the human race, the adored leader of hundreds of millions of the earth's inhabitants. All the armies that ever marched and all the navies that were ever assembled and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the rulers that ever reigned combined have not affected the life of man upon this earth so much as that one solitary life. Now, as you think about that, it really makes no sense. That one life, no matter how well lived, should have that, the kind of global impact that, that is being described here is attributed to the life of Christ. Um, at least I would say that the way it's written in this essay, it makes no sense. Because, I don't know if you caught it, but he left something out that's pretty important. Let me, let me give you another reading. Uh, this one has been recited uh, for a much longer period of time by Christians uh, for 1,600 years now. It's called the Apostles' Creed. And it reads like this. These are just the affirmations about Jesus from the Apostles' Creed. It says, um, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose from the dead... And then he ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Now, I know you being a sharp group may have picked up on the subtle emphasis that I brought out in terms of what was missing about the one solitary life reading. Okay? Hello, he rose from the dead. Okay? That explains why his life has been so influential. He ain't dead anymore. He's still alive, and he's still messing with people, all right? Um, you know, uh, the angels, as they put it in, in Matthew 28, uh, the angels show up at the tomb to speak to the women there, the empty tomb of Jesus. And the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Um, well, you know, what's of interest to us this morning is that at the end of all the accounts of Jesus' life, there are four Gospels, four little biographies of his life in the New Testament in your Bible, and each one of them includes the story that he, he was crucified unjustly, not for his own sins, but for the sins of people like us. And then on the third day, he was raised. And then perhaps lesserly known is there's this 40-day period 
where Jesus hangs around and, and stalks people, okay? Um, not the creepy, I want to call the authorities kind of stalking, but in love, pursuing people in order to help them believe this unbelievable reality that someone, the very Son of God, has, has died for their sins and then raised from the dead, okay? Um, you know, as you think about, about that, what Jesus did is he sought out people, sometimes in groups, as many as 500 saw the resurrected Christ, we're told. There are 10 different encounters. Most of them were one-on-one. Most of them, Jesus is stalking in love an individual who's struggling with their faith in order to help them believe. Um, he's not stalking people who are already convinced honestly, because nobody was already convinced of his resurrection. It had never been done before, and in the same fashion, it's never been done since. So everybody was struggling with whether or not to believe in it or what to make of it. So of those 10 resurrection appearances, I'd like to look in on three of them today with you and help you think about them. But as we do that, I want you to know that that word on the street is, and I think it's right, it makes sense, Because if he's risen, he is not dead. Word on the street is that he is still stalking people today. He is still messing with people. And in love, showing them how by his own life and death and resurrection, they can be drawn into a right relationship with their heavenly father. So we'll look today at John chapter 20 in your Bible at these three encounters with the risen Jesus. You can turn there, uh, or you can look off your neighbor. This is the one time it's okay to look on your neighbor's paper. Or um, I'll also have the verses up on the screen if you want to follow along there. But I'd like to pray for us as we open up our Bibles and think together about the risen Christ. So bow with me in prayer. Father, help us now to grasp uh, what what is really the back end of a great mystery. That the very Son of God should die for us on the one hand, and then be raised on the third day on the other uh, to life eternal in your presence, that which he offers us all. And so I pray that you'd help us to grasp that, to treasure it rightly, and let it affect us uh, in faith as we trust you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, John chapter 20 starts this way. Now on the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, that's the tomb of Jesus, and while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So the first encounter we want to think about with respect to the resurrected Christ is the very first encounter that anyone had with the resurrected Christ, and that's the encounter of Mary Magdalene. Now, um, Mary is often portrayed in modern writings as a woman with a past, okay? And she, she was a woman with a past, just not that kind of past. That was a different Mary. Mary Magdalene's past was not so much an immoral past as it was um, a crazy past, Okay, maybe I could say it that way. Um, Luke, in his gospel on the life of Christ, speaks about, uh, about Mary this way. It says, Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, 
And the 12 were with him. The 12 disciples were the Jesus. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Okay? So Mary's past is that she had been possessed by seven demons. I don't know what it's like to be possessed by seven demons. Um, but the glimpses we get from the New Testament are not normal. Okay? People who are possessed by demons in the New Testament, they are naked living amongst the tombs, we're told. So whatever Mary's like, life was like under the influence of these demons, it was not normal. Okay? But the Scriptures tell us that she was marvelously set free from that life by Jesus. I would imagine that her reputation back in the day might have been crazy Mary. And Jesus set her free from that. So it's that Mary, Mary Magdalene, on that first Easter morning, she arrives at the tomb early while it's still dark. Now, to her credit, this is pretty brave. Most of us do not hang out in cemeteries when it's dark. Okay? And Mary goes early, just desiring to give the one who saved her, who rescued her from her life, a decent burial. He'd been hurriedly buried prior to the Sabbath. And she goes there attempting to take care of that. But when she gets there, she finds the stone rolled away. She literally runs back to the disciples and she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple. Now the other disciple's name is John. He's the one who wrote this gospel account, and this is his modest way of referring to himself. He'll call himself the other disciple, sometimes the disciple Jesus loved. So Peter and John, they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. So much for the whole modesty thing. And, <laughs> and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went right into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now, to describe the scene at the tomb in the dark of the early morning as confusing would be an understatement. It's, it's chaos, okay? Uh, no one seems to know what to make of it. Uh, Mary is completely befuddled. Peter has no idea what's going on. But John, that other disciple, the author of this biography of Jesus we're reading, um, the one who beat Peter in the foot race to the tomb, he finally makes his way into the tomb. And there he makes special detailed note, you, you notice that as it was read, about those head cloths that were folded up neatly, like, like someone puts clothes away when they're not using them, or, or like they're supposed to put clothes away when they're not using them. Okay? This is not the work of grave robbers. Look, somebody breaks in your house, they go through your drawers, they don't tidy up when they're done. Okay? They don't fold things and put them back. So John is helping us see that this is not a normal grave robbery. 
He is recognizing that something extraordinary has happened here, and John now believes. And it's like Jesus just left clues for John to find, just to help John believe. Mary, however, is still confused and terribly distressed. It says, Mary stood weeping, weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stopped to look, or she stooped rather to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Um, Now again, Mary, unlike John, is not able to put the pieces together at this point. Um, Amidst that great grief and the early morning darkness, she's not even really mindful, it doesn't seem, that these are angels in the tomb. Now, that's more understandable than we think. If you've read the Old Testament and the stories of angels there, you know that angels can go covert if they choose to. They can show up looking like folk. And so she may have just thought, there's two dudes wearing white clothes in the tomb. Plus, she's horribly upset. Um, you know, you can imagine, if, if I went back to my hometown in the Midwest, the little town where I grew up, and I went out there to, to visit my parents' grave in the little cemetery, Oakwood Cemetery, buried outside of town, and I visited that on Friday, and I went back again on Sunday, and I found that those graves had been freshly exhumed, okay, I'm not going to be thinking real clearly at that moment, okay? Nor am I expecting to run into angels uh, in the vicinity of the tomb. So having, having said this to them, she turned around and she actually saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, She said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Um, Again, Mary's confusion and grief may be more understandable than we think. She is overwhelmed. She's weeping uncontrollably. And there's probably some difference in Jesus' post-resurrection appearance and when she last saw him on the cross. But what's clear here is Mary's devotion to Jesus. She just wants to honor her Lord by giving him a decent burial. And then Jesus said to her this one word. He said, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, their language, Rabboni, which means teacher, what what I'm sure Mary had always called him. She recognizes him now. Somehow just Jesus saying her name made everything clear. She came to her senses, um, and it banished her grief in an instant. Um, I read a description of this, and for those of you who've been in our recent studies, you won't surprise you who this is. Uh, Dale Bruner has a quote that I want to share with you that's absolutely phenomenal. He's one of my favorite um, commentators on the Scriptures. He describes what happened to Mary this way. He says, she turned around. And in the one or two seconds this turn took, I imagine the world shifting 
ever so slightly on its axis. A second before this turn, there is a woman in the deepest human despair, in the agonizing presence of inconquerable death. And a second after the beginning of this turn, there is a woman in the deepest possible human elation, in the presence of the death-conquering central figure of history. The rush that must have overcome this woman in her two-second turn is unimaginable. She's the first person ever to experience the personal presence of the risen Lord. When she turned to him at this moment, human history took a turn to responsible hope for the vincibility of death and so to the conquest of meaninglessness. See, Proverbs 18, that ancient proverb has come true for Mary, where God, speaking his wisdom, says, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. See, Jesus has has sought out Mary. He has stalked her, in a sense, to give her just what she needed to believe. Mary needed to hear him speak her name. And, and if you're familiar with the teachings of Jesus, especially in John's gospel, that might remind you of something. Jesus is describing himself as a good shepherd, and he says, when the sheep hear my voice, Jesus says, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out, When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Jesus still does that. There's a woman named uh, Frederica Matthews Green. She's a professor and writer and she describes her story this way. She'd been very religious as a young child, but then she said when she was 12 or 13, she began to doubt the entire Christian story. I felt almost, she says, as if I had somebody try to cheat me. They had fed me this long, complex story about virgin birth, born in a manger, died on a cross, come back to life, and it sounded preposterous to me. I thought that it was something that no normal, sane person could be expected to believe, and I'd been made a fool. So she began to consider atheism and agnosticism and various other religions. She says, but I particularly rejected Christianity with vehemence. I chose Hinduism, she says, because it seemed to me the most intriguing and colorful of all the different world religions. She says, but what ultimately led me out of Hinduism was a strange experience. I was with my husband on our honeymoon, hitchhiking around Europe, and he was an atheist who'd been assigned in one of his classes to read one of the gospel accounts, like the one we're reading today. And he kept saying, there's something about Jesus I've never encountered anyone like this before. I know that he's speaking the truth. I'm an atheist, but if Jesus says there's a God, there must be a God. She said it was a very scary experience for me because I did not want him to be a Christian. So she says, we're in Dublin sightseeing. I walk into a church. We're admiring the windows and altar and so forth. And in a corner of the church, there's a small altar with a white marble statue that showed Jesus' heart exposed on his chest with flames coming out of the top and thorns wrapped around his heart. And as I was looking at this, she says, I suddenly realized that I was on my knees. She says, it's as if a radio inside me suddenly clicked on and I could hear a voice. I didn't hear it with my ears, but it was like a presence that filled me and the voice said, I am your life. You thought your life was your history, your name, your personality. You thought that your life was the fact that your heart beats, but that's not your life. I am your life. I'm the foundation of everything in your life. 
She says, it's pretty incontrovertible who it was that was speaking to me. So she said, so I started reading the Bible. And I found that I disagreed with Jesus about a lot of things. But, and then she says something really wise. She said, something happened to me in that church in which I realized that I didn't know everything about the world. Gradually, she says, we were able to come into faith. It was several months later that a friend of ours said, well, have you ever given your hearts to Jesus? Have you ever asked Jesus to be your Lord? And she says, you have to picture that we both grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, him Episcopalian, me Catholic, and our response to that question was, we're not Southern Baptists. She said, our association with that kind of talk is you have to be Southern Baptist for Jesus to be your Lord. And he said, well, actually, it's for everybody. And we said, well, you know, we're in graduate school. And he says, no, even for you. (laughs) And she said, so the three of us knelt down together and prayed and asked Jesus to be our Lord, having no idea what that would mean and wanting so much to find out. I want you to think honestly with me. Um, Can you sense at all that perhaps today Jesus in love is stalking you? That he is calling your name? That he is granting you faith, maybe for the very first time, to believe. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. He is that comfort. He comes to Mary in her broken heartedness. He pursues those whose faith has withered in their greatest sorrow and loss. Now in the verses that follow, and we don't have time to read them all this morning, Mary tells the disciples about her encounter. And, and uh, I want you to know that Mary's transformed by this. She goes from fearful and confused to joyful and assertive about the truth of what she just observed. Okay? But it seems that the disciples still thought, this is crazy, Mary. Look at their response in Mark's account of this. It says, now, when, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. And she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept, that's the disciples. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Okay. So Jesus then starts stalking his disciples. And you can read this in the account. And so he shows up in a room on the next Sunday, or on that Sunday, where they are gathered. Um, And he shows them his hands and the scars. And he shows them his side where he was pierced with a spear on the cross. And he commissions them. He says to them, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. Even so, I'm sending you. And so the disciples believe. But one of the disciples is absent. And his name is Thomas. And his is the second story we want to look at. This morning, the next verse in verse 24, Thomas, one of the 12 disciples, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hand in his hands, the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas, I think, is what we would call a skeptic, okay? Um, 
He lays down terms, and if they aren't met, he is adamant. He will never, never, ever, 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 ever believe, okay? It's just that, that's the way it is. And you have to think about what this is in the face of, okay? It's in the face of the testimony of the other 10 disciples, okay? They told him, we have seen the Lord. We've seen his hands and his side. And he goes, nah, not buying it. He hears from Mary and the other women who are at the tomb. We have seen the Lord. Nah, don't, not buying it. There's a couple of disciples walking down the road to Emmaus, Luke tells us. They virtually have dinner with Jesus, okay? or they're about to when he disappears from their midst. Long conversation with Jesus. They tell him about it. Nope, not believing. He's, he's showed himself to Peter by this time. Still, Thomas is not buying it. Plus, he has the memory of a guy named Lazarus that Jesus really did raise from the dead one time. And yet, Thomas, in the face of all of this, is resolute in his unbelief. He missed the experience firsthand. He is not buying it. He requires firsthand experience to verify this ridiculously unbelievable nonsense that everybody else is buying into. Dale Bruner jokingly suggests that the first moral from Thomas' sad story of doubt is this. Get thee to church on time. Okay? <laughs> he says, Thomas' unfortunate absence from the gathering of disciples is the single most in inopportunely or perhaps even irresponsibly missed meeting in church history. So show up in church. Jesus shows up sometimes here. Um, but now in love, once again, Jesus, Jesus is stalking Thomas. Eight days later, that would be the following Sunday by their count, one week later, uh, on the Lord's Day again, this day, just, just like us, they are gathered together on this day. His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. It's like a do-over. And this one's for Thomas. He said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put your hand and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, Thomas, but believe. See, Jesus is after Thomas. It's as though this entire appearance is just for him. All other ten, the other ten had already believed Jesus is coming just for Thomas at this point in time. And Jesus offers what Thomas had required. Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, Thomas, but believe. Jesus wants Thomas free from the hopelessness of unbelief. He wants him to believe, so he grants Thomas just what he needs. In Thomas' case, it's just what he asked for. But I want you to know that it, it, making deals with God that go like this if you do X, I'll do Y, can be kind of tricky. Okay? And, and in Thomas' case, you notice, he didn't actually make a deal with God. Okay? He was just pushing back against the other disciples. And it's as though Jesus overheard him, even though he wasn't in the room, which is a very God-like thing of Jesus to do. He knows our thoughts and words, even though he is not physically present. So, 
The other thing about deals with God is that they involve our conflicted hearts. You know, are our motives really pure when we're brokering deals with God? Or I'm a, I think most of the time we're like the guy, the businessman who had a really important meeting. He's circling the block, desperate to find a parking space. Every space is taken. So not a man given to prayer, but a man desperate for a parking space, he prays. And he brokers a deal with God. God, if you will provide me this parking space, I will go to church this Sunday and every Sunday, and I will even stop drinking. Okay. Miraculously, a parking space appeared, and the guy looks up again and says, never mind, I found one. Okay. Um, Better kind of faith that drives those kind of deals with God's. There's this story told by Steve Shogren um, about a guy. It's a true story about a guy named Joe Delaney, his eight-year-old son, Jared. They're out playing catch in their backyard, dad and son. And Jared does what eight-year-olds do. In the middle of playing catch, he says, Dad, is there a God? Now, Joe has no idea. He doesn't have been to church a few times when he's, when he's a kid. He really doesn't know. He tells Jared that. He tells him, son, I'm, I'm not a church guy. I really don't know if there's a God. And Jared runs into the house and says, I'll be right back. Moments later, he returns with a helium balloon from the circus, a pen, and an index card. And Jared explains, I'm going to send God an airmail message. And this is what he wrote on the card attached to the balloon. Dear God, wrote Jared, if you are real and you are there, send people who know you to dad and me. And Joe is thinking, God, I hope you're real and I hope you're watching. Okay. So they watch the balloon, the message sail away. Two days later, um, Joe and Jared pull into a car wash that's sponsored by Shogren's church. And when Joe asks how much, Shogren answered, it's free, no strings attached. We just want to show God's love in a practical way. And Joe says, are you guys Christians, the kind of Christians who believe in God? And then from that encounter at the car wash and maybe a helium balloon and the faith of an eight-year-old child, Joe Delaney would come to know the God that he did not know existed. And so did Thomas. Because Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand, place it into my side, do not disbelieve but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Okay. Now you need to know, that is not profanity. That is theology. He is confessing what he knows to be true about who Jesus really is now. Jesus is Lord. Think master, ruler, sovereign. Jesus is God. Think God, okay? Um, and, and those two run together. This is the language that's used to speak in the Bible of God, Lord and God. Thomas is declaring Jesus to be no less than his God. For a Jew like Thomas, that meant that he's declaring Jesus to be the one and only true God. And twice Thomas says, he's mine. He's my Lord. He's my God. It's not just a cosmic reality that he assents to, but it's a personally held belief and trust he is now, we could say, the disciple formerly known as Doubting Thomas. Okay? And tradition tells us that Thomas was transformed by this experience. I spent the bulk of January in India, and while I was there, I got to go all the way down to the southern tip 
uh, west coast of India to a state called Kerala State. We have a missionary family there. Jeff and Brigida live there. And I was visiting them. But in that state, tradition holds that St. Thomas went and traveled all the way to Kerala State in India before his death and planted churches there. They say 17,000 converts came to Christ through Thomas' ministry there in all four of the Hindu castes. And there are still churches there that bear St. Thomas' name as a result of that. And then, and then tradition tells us that he was martyred for his faith. This was transformative for Thomas, this encounter that helped him trust that Christ really is risen. But don't lose track of the wonder of this encounter. 1,600 years ago, a guy named Chrysostom wrote this about it. He said, when you see the disciple, that's Thomas, refusing to believe, reflect on the mercy shown by the Lord, how even for the sake of one soul, he showed himself with his wounds. Often it seems, Jesus in love stalks doubters one by one. And he seems to have a special desire for those most undeserving, those who resolutely refuse to believe, those who are in the greatest need of faith. Um, Sean Hopwood writes about his story. He says that it didn't take a moment of genius introspection to realize that doing life my way had led to nothing but disaster and destruction. It was the summer of 2009. I had just completed an almost 11-year sentence in federal prison for my role in five bank robberies I had committed as a foolish young man. After my release, I moved into an apartment with the love of my life, Annie. Two weeks later, I proposed. One week after that, we learned she was pregnant. At age 35, I was about to become a husband and a father. I was a felon. We had no money and no real plan for our future. He says, it may terrify some of my readers to know that I grew up in a Christian home in rural Nebraska with parents who had started a local church. When my high school basketball career faded in college and the military fell through, I was left with a complete lack of purpose, susceptible to addiction and depression. And when my equally adrift best friend suggested we rob a bank, it struck me as a legitimate idea. We robbed five banks with guns and scared the tellers and patrons half to death. I knew it was wrong, he says. Still, I couldn't stop the easy money and party lifestyle that large sums of unearned money brought me. It didn't stop until the FBI literally tackled me inside the lobby of a Doubletree Hotel in Omaha. A year later, he says, I stood with shaky legs and a trembling spirit before a federal judge who sentenced me to more than 12 years in federal prison. I was 23. He says, I think many parents would have forsaken someone like me, but mine continued to pray for me. And my mom continued to send me Christian books, even after I told her to stop. I'd read, those, I'd read those books and then wonder if God had forgotten about me. I wasn't quite ready for God, but I also couldn't rationalize the transformation I'd seen in the lives of my fellow prisoners. After my release, when Annie and I got engaged, we decided that we wanted my friend, Pastor Marty Barnhart, to officiate the ceremony. He says, God bless him. Marty wouldn't agree to perform the ceremony until we had gone through his premarital counseling. So our first counseling session was, he says, in a word, memorable. Instead of discussing marriage, Marty asked what we believed about Jesus. And when he talked about grace, the free gift of salvation, I listened, especially when he said, I could be forgiven. He said, yeah, even you, Sean. 
The next day, I couldn't escape the feeling, he says, that God had been pursuing me for a long time and that if I just abandoned my stubbornness and selfishness and hand everything over to him, I would find redemption. He says, what does it mean to be redeemed? How do you redeem yourself after robbing five banks? He says, the answer is, you don't. The answer is that you need some help. In Ephesians 1, he says, Paul writes that in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. To put it differently, he says, because of our sins, none of us, and surely no former prisoner like me, can be redeemed on our own. We need the gospel of grace, which says that each of us matters and has worth because we're made in the image of God. Grace says we are not defined by our failures and our faults, but by a love without merit or condition. God's grace, he says, was enough to redeem me. Through it all, he says, from the amazing to the mundane, God loved us. Through it all, God has given us a sense of purpose. Looking back over the course of my life, I can see that although I rarely returned the favor, God hotly pursued me. You know, wherever you are this morning, you are not beyond the reach of God's mercy and grace. Jesus, I think, may have had, had you in mind. I think me too, when he said this, the very next thing Jesus says, Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so Jesus says, faith is not just for eyewitnesses. Jesus is clear there are people that are going to believe not because they see, but because they hear. Hearing will be enough for them. Jesus is saying that hearing can be enough for you. Jesus is looking forward through time and he's promising to bless all who believe on the basis of what's written about his life. He's promising to bless you. The risen Jesus is promising to bless you if you will believe. And John picks up on that very idea that Jesus brings up and he writes this, he interjects this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that's really the third story alongside Mary's story and Thomas' story, it's the story of those of us who believe through their stories. Okay. Um, John indicates that he wrote these things down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. The fulfillment of all the hopes of the Old Testament for a rescuer who would save the people from their sins. The very Son of God. So this Easter, Easter morning, you hear read the account of the stone rolled away of the tomb emptied, of headcloths folded, of angels giving instructions, of Mary's eyewitness testimony, of the testimony of all 11 disciples, especially, especially Thomas, the former doubter. And all of these things have been written down for you to believe so that you could have life rich and full and eternal with your heavenly Father. So, lots of stories of faith this morning. Um, Mary, Thomas, we could say John, the other disciples, Frederica Matthews Green, Joe Delaney, Sean Hopwood. Um, this morning, what would it take for you to add yours to that list? 
I'd like to just close us in prayer as, as you think about that. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, it's, it's almost an unbelievable grace that you extend. Forgiveness of sins through the work of another. That Jesus came and died to pay our sins so that we might have a right relationship with you. Um, he rose on the third day to prove it all true and to establish a whole new life for us. And so I pray for um, those whose steps you've ordered so that they would be here today to hear this account, which was written down so that they might believe that in mercy you might grant them faith to trust in Jesus' good work on the cross and his resurrection on the third day on their behalf. And this we do ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the worship team's about to lead us in our closing song of response, and there's a lyric in it I want to draw to your attention before we sing it. It goes like this. Because a sinless Savior died... My sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And if you place your trust in Christ this morning as you sing that, let that be your confession of faith. Sing it to God as your own, okay? Let's stand and let's worship Christ, our risen Savior.